0: Good morning, and it's time for conversation here on 94 WIP. It's chilly out there, but we're going to have hot conversation <coughs> here on 94 WIP. We're going to try and fathom the unfathomable. We're going to talk about murder, in particular, a murder that happened back out on the— starting off at the Jenny Jones show when one man killed another and what that was all about. When we come back in just a bit— Psychiatrist Dr. Carol Lieberman is going to talk about the murder and a whole lot more coming up here on 94 WIP. Murder, he said. That's what we're going to talk about this morning with Dr. Carol Lieberman, psychiatrist, and she consulted any case, a case of same-sex murder. All this and more. Good morning, Dr. Lieberman. Good morning. All right. Take us back to that murder that happened in May of 2011.
1: Yes. Um, well, the murder—I'm sorry. The murder was in on March 9, okay. 1995. And um, and what this uh, this was actually one of the first uh, murders or tragedies related to talk shows and now reality TV, and uh, so it's a classic case. And actually, it changed a lot of laws in terms of what people have to sign before they appear on uh, on talk shows or on reality shows. This was um, a story about a man, Jonathan Schmitz. I was. defense psychiatrist I was the psychiatrist uh, for Jonathan Schmidt who was accused of first-degree murder and what had happened was uh, the Jenny Jones show which was a talk show at the time uh, invited him to come on and told him that there was somebody who had a secret crush on him what they failed to tell him was that it was a same-sex secret crush you know, they would have on their shows uh, at the at the end of the shows, they would often have a call. Uh, they would put out a request for people to call into the show. If you have, in this case, it was if you have a, a crush on somebody of the same sex and you would like to bring them on the show to tell them, you know, call in. And so Scott Amador uh, called into the show and told them about John, that he had he did have a secret crush on him. And um, the, they, he, John didn't know who Jenny Jones was. He really didn't watch very much television. Uh, he thought that the person who had the crush on him was his uh, fiancée who had broken up with him not long before. He was hoping it was that. And if not, he had some girls at work who were flirting with him, so he figured that maybe it was them. Um, had he been told... That it was a man who had the same well, that it was a same sex secret, same sex secret crush show. That it was a man who had the secret crush. He never would have gone on the show, not because he was homophobic, or because uh, it was a gay hate crime ultimately, or any of that. Had nothing to do with that. He worked often as a waiter, and he had lots of friends who were gay. And in fact, Scott Amador um, had was a friend of a friend and had already uh, not long before actually told John or showed John that he was interested in having a relationship with him. And John told him even before the show, I'll be your friend, but I'm not into that. So regardless, um, this man didn't, Scott didn't want to take no for an answer. And uh, John came on the show and they, you know, lo and behold, when he came on the stage, there was his friend, a girl, Donna Riley, who was a mutual friend um, of Scott. And they really made, I mean, he was one of several uh, ambushes. And they really, um, you know, they before he came out, they had Scott talk about all his different sexual fantasies regarding John and so on. And then when John came out, they replayed these really lurid uh, sexual fantasies. And he, he just started to um, disintegrate, this, decompensate. He had, before all this, uh, he had manic depressive illness. He had thyroid disorder, which had psychiatric symptoms. He had, all kind, he had made several suicide attempts before. He had a very dysfunctional family. And so and if, if Jenny Jones' producers had asked any of this, they would have realized this wasn't a good idea to have him come on the show. But they didn't ask anything. They just wanted him on. And, uh, and it was three days after that, that John ended up, um, going to Scott's house, asking him to stop because Scott had continued pursuing him. And, um, and Scott wouldn't stop. I mean, he just kind of sneered at him. And so John went back to his car and he brought out a gun, um, and a shotgun that he, you know, he, he was a hunter with his father, um, and so he brought a gun, but the gun was to um to show Scott that he was you know that he was serious he never planned to kill Scott he actually had planned to he bought the gun to kill himself but he wanted to make one more try to um get Scott to just kind of you know stop and uh and then there was a whole connection I don't want I don't want to just keep going on if it's um But there was a whole fascinating part. Well, there were lots of fascinating parts of this. And I testified um, in his trial, of course, and uh, wound up getting him second degree instead of first degree, which they had thought was a slam dunk because he actually called 911 after he ended up uh, killing Scott.
0: Mm, mm,
1: mm, mm. Why did you get involved? Was
0: it simply another (laughs) business decision? simply another way business decision somebody wanted to hire you
1: oh <laughs> well no not really but but let me just um uh i, I want to make sure that i I'll, I'll be happy to answer that but i just want to make sure that um i tell you sort of the key part um the, the defense was diminished capacity and uh, that he couldn't form the intent to kill and what um what it was was that and i learned this when i first got there um i got there in october of uh 96 and testified a month later and the key to the whole thing was that uh and and i learned this was the first day i got there i mean i had been reading up records and watching the jenny jones show uh, all different tapes and angles and so on um but that day i met with the lawyers and then I went and had lunch with John's family, and I was asking them about his childhood and trying to get all kinds of information. And we, I asked them about, we got into this um, story of something that happened a year before, before the shooting. And um, his father demonstrated what, what the story was. And that was um, on Mother's Day the year before, they they had he and his father had had a little too much to drink and he went after his father and was yelling at him about how how could he have done that to him uh, in Miss Jusula's class. And, and what it was, was his father uh, thought he was playing hooky and he brought John into um, the classroom and by the scruff of his neck and um, whipped him, you know, with a belt in front of his class. And that was the most humiliating experience that John had ever had. And so he, um, when he was chasing his father up the stairs, you know, yelling at him about this is, you know, obvious this was like the most traumatic event that had happened to him. Um, His father picked up a chair to sort of defend himself. He raised, he picked up a chair over his head. So at this lunch, um, the father was describing this and he got up from his chair and, uh and put you know, demonstrated, acted out lifting up a chair, holding his hands up and holding a chair above his head. And that was the same exact movement and um look and everything that I had just heard a couple of hours before from the lawyer, from John's lawyer as far as what Scott had done. When John went to Scott's house, his Scott's roommate, you know called him out, uh, said John's here, and the roommate and and Scott came out, and he held a chair over his head like to defend himself. It was the same exact movement way you know that I had just seen the lawyer do, and so clearly um that became a key aspect of the defense that when john was when John shot Scott, it was sort of a reflex reaction, and it was really that he was back. To the first um, incident with his father, he was really shooting his father um, because of this humiliation in front of his class. And then that coalesced with the humiliation in front of, on national TV, or was supposed to go on national TV on the Jenny Jones show. And I mean, there was a lot more to it, but that was sort of the key factor that it was just a, an automatic reflex. Um, you know, the two most humiliating things in his life uh were happening at the same time combined and he um and he and the gun just went off now as far as what you asked um no this was (laughs) this was not just any old job um uh i it actually came about in a strange way but um but i had begun being this was in the i had just started being a uh, forensic psychiatrist I mean, I still do that to this day. Um, And it came about, though, not in the usual kind of way. Uh, I was writing a column at the time for the National Examiner called um, Showbiz Shrink. And when uh, I had heard the news about what had happened, this incident, I wanted to do a column on it. And so I contacted one of John's lawyers to do an interview and, you know, he wanted me to send my CV before he would talk to me and so on. And, um, and what happened, by the time he got back to me to do the interview, I had already had to uh, uh, send in the column, uh, you know, for the deadline. But when he saw my CV, he thought that I would be an excellent expert witness. And that's how that came about. And I have, um, I mean, I'm still in touch with John. I have written a book. I uh, am finishing a book called Murder by TV about this. It was a very, just um, the whole story was just very dramatic and very, uh, well, the, it has a happy, it has a relatively happy ending. Unfortunately, not for Scott, but um, the, the relatively happy ending is that John spent 22 years in prison and then was paroled um, in 2017. So, uh, and he did in prison, he went to college, he learned to play the guitar, he did um, all, he became a model prisoner and um, is, you know, has, uh, was always, was always remorseful from the beginning. Uh, Again, as I said, he called 911 right after this happened. It's not like, uh, you know, from the beginning he took responsibility. And it was just, I mean, his whole life is such a, it's just a hard to believe um, story of coming, starting with genetic loading, you know, genetic, uh, inheriting this Graves disease, uh, hyperthyroid disease that has psychiatric components to it. And then being manic depressive, having an abusive father um, who was a Vietnam vet, uh, just all. All mainly um, he came from a line of hard, of military men, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. They were hard-hunting, hard-drinking uh, Michigan, you know, country guys. And they had thought, this was the, yes, this was sort of the, they had thought that John, you know, was too sensitive, as it was growing up, um, you know, that they he wasn't like them. And, and he did hunt because that was, a time that he could share with his father when his father wasn't being abusive. And, um, and he did drink um, in binges. Um, and so when, what he, why he was so uh, upset, why he fell apart on the Jenny Jones show and thereafter was because he was it wasn't a gay hate crime. It was because he thought that now his family would believe, as they had suspected that he was gay and that they would abandon him. They would believe that because a gay man came on television and said he had a crush on him, they would that would like confirm their belief that John in fact was gay, and then he was terrified that they would take their love away from him.
0: Mm-mm-mm. Certainly a complicated story. And you're listening to yes. con- <laughs> and, you- and you're listening to conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, my guest this morning, Doctor Carol Lieberman, author of a new book and a documentary on the murder of um, Scott Amador by Jonathan Schmitz, portrayed in a new documentary coming soon to a TV set near you. Um, Doctor Amador, who I mean, Doctor um, Lieberman, who yeah, who ultimately has responsibility though, was it? Was it Jonathan? Was it the Jenny Jones show? Was it Jenny Jones herself?
1: Well, um, you know, I'm sure John does take responsibility for his part in this. But had there not been this ambush on the Jenny Jones show, he would never have done that. He had never been violent to anybody other than himself in his, you know, suicide attempts. But um but he was not otherwise violent. This was, you know, you could see on the show uh his actual decompensation, you know, through his body language, through his um his his what he was saying you know, you, he kind of started going off into on these tangents. You could just, you could just. In fact, that's what I did for the jury. I, I dissected it and explained what each movement and each uh, statement and so on. How you could see on the air what was happening in his mind. Now, Jenny Jones, um, she has major responsibility as well, and and um, there was a civil suit afterwards that sued the show. Uh, and they won originally a $25 million judgment, and then that was reversed on appeal. But, um, and she has, denied, I mean, it's she has denied both in the criminal case, she, she testified in the criminal case that I testified in, and, um, but she, you know, she denied any, that, that she had anything to do with it, and yet I, I had a lot of the tapes, the the videotapes from the show. You know, they sent me that to prepare so I could see it from all different angles. And some of the tapes had audio on it that wasn't um, aired, you know, that wasn't... Uh, it was just her conversations during the, the commercial breaks. She was having a conversation with her uh, executive producer. And it showed in his... Uh, in these tapes, that, um, you know, she knew what was going on and she was laughing about it. She thought this was great television.
0: That's astounding to me because, as I remember, Jenny Jones seemed like a nice lady, the lady next door.
1: Yes, well, ironically, I had been on her show uh, three or four times before all of this, never had a problem, but, but I saw that on that show, as in many talk shows at the time um, and still today on, on reality shows that guests um, were, were only as useful, you know, the guests were coddled before they went on the show, you know, before it was time for them to make a good show. They were, you know, they were their all expenses paid, hotel, food, green room, um, everything. And then as soon as they were done, that segment was done, they were sent off back to the hotel or back to the airport with no, no more coddling. So they were basically used, um, not just on Jenny Jones. I mean, that's kind of how it was. Um, so I did see that on her show. And, you know, that, that was an interesting forerunner to what then happened with John. How did this
0: case change the law? I'm sorry.
1: How did, you... how did the case change the law? Um, because now, uh, after there was this suit against the Jenny Jones show, uh, they have beefed up the contracts that you have to sign before you go on air. Both uh, all ki- all the people who appear, you know, when I appear on air, even I have to sign these contracts basically saying that no matter what happens, you can't sue the show and similarly for guests who are, you know, participants like um, like John and Scott and so on. Whoever goes on a, on a show, a talk show or a reality show, uh, have to sign these really ironclad contracts that, um, you know, so that the shows protect themselves from from these kind from being sued, like her show was sued, because even though. Uh, the, it was reversed ultimately. The twenty-five million dollar judgment. Still, that was a lot of uh, that was a lot of stress for everybody involved, and and uh, a sort of a near miss in terms of what they had to pay. Probably ended Jenny's career, didn't it? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the show went on until two thousand and three. This happened in ninety-five, and they kept the show going even past the civil suit. Because they wanted to, I pretty much just passed the civil suit until it was reversed. Um, because they wanted to prove that they weren't doing anything wrong, it was sort of, um, um, you know, being being arrogant and um, trying to prove the point: we're not doing anything wrong.
0: And obviously, not only did it change the law, but it changed talk shows.
1: Right, right. I mean, that's not to say, you know, I've worked on uh, reality shows also after that. And even though, yes, it was true that um, they had to sign these more difficult uh, contracts, um, there's still, you know, the there's still, I mean, let's look at um, The Bachelor, for example. That wasn't the show that I was working on, but, but it's a current example of um i mean of how people are treated uh you know just being embarrassing people humiliating people is part of what makes them successful and so they don't really stop they haven't stopped doing that why do you think people go on then oh 15 minutes of fame um uh, thinking that it's going to be different for them, that they're going to be able to uh, control how it is, um, you know, that that, uh, that they're not going to, um, that they're, well, like The Bachelor, you know, they're going to find true love. Um, or the show that I worked on for three years after the Jenny Jones case uh, was Paternity Court. And uh, so people go on that who want to find out who their baby daddy is. Uh, I mean, the baby daddy <laughs> of their baby. And, um, and, you know, of course it's um, humiliating. And, and on that show, I worked, um, I helped to try to uh, screen the guests. Uh, of course, you know, that's the thing with all of these shows, that the guests who are the most interesting, who make the best television are unfortunately the ones who are the most psychologically unstable. So there's this tendency to want to get guests who are going to be dramatic, you know, who are going to fall apart, who, um, uh, you know, who are going to cry on the show, um, scream, all those kinds of things. So it, it, it's sort of a, it was hard for me to try to point out things that, uh, that that really could be a danger sign uh, with particular guests. but um, uh, and and you know and as a uh, current one as I was saying the Bachelor, um, you know yes people so so the baby people going on paternity court a lot of them couldn't afford to have uh, the test themselves or couldn't or couldn't get the potential father to take a paternity ca- test. And yet when, the, when these men had the possibility of, you know, an all-expense-paid all expense trip to Atlanta, that's where that, well, it started out in L.A. and then it went to Atlanta, um, you know, that, that was sort of a, uh, a perk that um, kind of convinced them to, to do it. I mean, also some of them wanted to really know whether they were the father or not, also, particularly when it was a married couple they wanted to know if uh, the the child that they were told was theirs really was theirs. But, you know, of course there was always a lot of drama. If there wasn't drama, who would watch any of these shows?
0: It's really all about ego for them, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, yes, they want their 15 minutes of fame, but, but, there, there is also this other aspect, at least in some of the shows, you know, as I said, like the bachelor hoping they're going to try and find true love or that they're going to be the one who's picked so that they can show everybody that they are the most desirable of all these other women or all these other men. Um, paternity court, it solves a question that, that these people wanted to know. I mean, it, so it really wasn't just about ego. um, you know, they they were hoping for for something good to come out of it, but they what they underestimated was how just how much reality shows are manipulated, are not really reality, are you know, are are heightened.
0: A good message for all of us: reality ain't what it used to be. Certainly. Um. How did you change your practice? I'm sorry. Could you how speak a you, little louder? How did you change your practice? I Well,
1: um, you know, I have gone on to do a lot of – I do a lot of – I kind of specialize in high-profile trials because, um, because there is some additional – you know, you have to be, um, be able to weather the, the media storm, in high profile trials and because uh, other things that I do, you know, in regard to my books and, and uh, just um, talking about various things, I've been doing that for years before I became a, uh, a forensic psychiatrist. You know, I actually had started, you know, I was on Oprah. I was talking about all kinds. That's what I, when I became a psychiatrist, I had hoped to be able to do what I'm doing in terms of spreading insights, not just in my office, with patients twenty four seven but um, using the media uh, television and radio, all of this to um, to help people understand different things about the mind and different psychological uh, issues and so um, so but that still this case um, I would say was the most impactful of all because because I saw behind the scenes, both of, of the media, you know, um, the lies, and I saw behind the scenes in the courtroom. Um, there were a bit, it was so, huh, it was so set up to, um, to against John. Um, there were, I mean, first of all, the day that I testified, the morning, the whole morning, was spent on the prosecutor uh, trying to get me disqualified as an expert, and he would bring up things like, you know, she's been on television, on she's talked about giving her opinion about this and that, and you know, he named all these different topics that I had been talking about in the media, and uh, she, you know, so she has opinions on everything. Uh, why should we, you know, take this seriously? And um, so I said, well. Yes, I have given my opinions about these various issues. Um, But, uh, you know, this is one where I have prepared for months uh, and I went on with what I did, how many hours I spent talking with John, how many hours I spent looking over the records and the tapes and all of that. And I said, this is a lot more serious than offering my opinion about, you know, (laughs) I don't whatever topics he brought up um, that were more uh that i didn't spend you know all that time studying so intensively um, but so that was the whole morning and the judge the judge didn't disqualify me um and and then the afternoon the whole afternoon was spent on talking about john's history like i showed how he was uh, an eggshell uh, defendant how he was um vulnerable to what had happened to him on the Jenny Jones Show, and I started from, his, from before his birth with his genetic history, his family, all the different mental illnesses they had, and, and thyroid disease, and so many people uh, in his families, his, his, both sides of his family. And um, then I went, you know his head banging as a, as a baby, and I just went from, from from before birth until the actual moment of the shooting. And and so that took the whole afternoon. And um, because there were lots of, you know, he had a very, there was all kinds of uh, important things. And, of course, of course a lot of the time was spent on the Jenny Jones show itself, as I was saying before, analyzing his movements, his words, what that meant psychologically. Um, and then, of course, after the show and, and how this was really going to be a suicide attempt, how many other suicide attempts he made, um, and and then explaining about the moment of the that the gun went off and how he couldn't have formed the intent to kill. He had after the Jenny Jones show, uh, he didn't sleep for days. Uh, you know the nights that there were in between. He had smoked pot. He had he started drinking. He had had as I mentioned before. He did have. Um, a bit of a problem with binge drinking, you know, that was part of wanting to be, show his father that he was a man and so on. Um, But, and, and, but he had been clean and sober for months. And then he started drinking again right after the show. And so there was that. Um, So all these different things were acting on his mind at the time that the gun went off. Dr. Lieberman,
0: how do we look at a child like, Jonathan, before he commits a crime, you know there's trouble here and we should do something about it. Is it possible?
1: Well, yes, and there were signs. Um, you know, of course, his parents were really, were really uh, regretful or sad that they hadn't intervened earlier in his life. There were signs that, for example, when he was 8 years old, um, he he had met this, he and his parents had met this woman who was um, very nice to them, to him particularly, and then um, later on, he told his father that he had visited this woman named Lola, and there was no way that he could have visited her, because they had met her somewhere else other than where they lived, and so it was like his first um first time that they were aware, anyway, that he was having hallucinations. So they, so looking back on that, of course, now they thought, oh, we should have done something more, you know, taken him to therapy. Actually, he did see a psychiatrist before Jenny Jones a few times. Um, the psychiatrist didn't really, you know, didn't obviously appreciate the seriousness of his um, illness. And he had, in fact, taken some blood tests and his thyroid was high, but he didn't really do anything about it. The psychiatrist. Um, So there were like, you know, bits and pieces. There were opportunities, of course. Oh, there was also after one of his um, suicide attempts, he was put in the hospital uh, briefly and so there were these sort of brief interactions, these brief opportunities to have done a more serious, ongoing kind of treatment, uh, but that were missed. And um, so what parents, parents do need to be more um, on the lookout. You know, Nobody wants to think that their child could have some kind of mental disorder. So there's a lot of denial that goes on. And then of course, if the child doesn't want to, you know, go for therapy, um, I mean, when they're a child, you can kind of make them. <laughs> but, um, but then, as they get older, it's hard to, to enforce it. Uh, you can certainly try to convince your child to go, and 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 you can certainly call 911 um, if the child or adult um, is doing something that is a danger to themselves or others. That's that they would be um, uh, hospitalized or should be hospitalized involuntarily at that point, uh, uh, danger to self, danger to others, or unable to, or gravely disabled, unable to provide food and shelter for themselves when they get older. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of of really stepping in, taking a firmer stand. Uh, there really are signs children do exhibit signs whether it's talking about something you know a person who isn't there or whether it's being depressed whether it's using drugs uh certainly suicide attempts the big clues um and and parents really do just need to step in and, and and you know the thing is unfortunately part now nowadays this was in 95 and and uh uh, although the psychiatrist that John went to wasn't really very effective. But, but in those days still, psychiatrists were doing more therapy than they do now. Uh, nowadays, so many psychiatrists, most psychiatrists do what's called med visits. They see the patient for like 20 minutes. They give them a prescription. They tell them to come back in two months. I mean, there are lots of cases of people dying, com- suicide, homicide, uh, because of this kind of not getting effective treatment, not, not catching what's wrong with them. People need therapy. Kids and adults need therapy when they have some kind of psychiatric problem, not just a prescription. That is not going to solve anything. Um, and that's, you know, I think that was part of what happened with John, too, with the psychiatrist he saw briefly before Jenny Jones, um, that, that it was, you know, wasn't enough deep therapy uh i I refuse to do mid visits um any patient who comes to me has to see me once a week for for therapy you know talk therapy, and if they need some medication, I give them medication also during the session but um nobody can be cured by a prescription alone
0: can be cured by a prescription alone that's an important thing for us to remember, isn't it
1: Yes. You know, everybody wants quick fixes and they think uh, I'll go for an anxiety medication or a depression, antidepressant, Um, but anxiety medications are very addicting and antidepressants, I mean, whatever the problem is, whatever the diagnosis is, you need therapy for it. Um, You may also need medication, not necessarily, but you absolutely need therapy.
0: What did Jonathan think was going on with him? What I'm sorry. What What did Jonathan Jonathan perceive was happening in his head?
1: Well, you know, he didn't. He didn't really want a label, but he knew um, that there were uh, that that he had problems. That um, that he didn't really have a whole lot of insight before the Jenny Jones show. Um, and during my uh, my many meetings with him to get information to be able to testify about it, I think that as often happens, as usually happens, um, when I'm gathering information for a case, uh, the person that I'm talking to gains insight just because of these questions, basically. And so I think he did gain a lot of insight during that time. Um, but, I mean, he knew there was something wrong. He knew that he was, uh, that he was perceiving things that other people didn't perceive in the same way. Um, but he was very, you know, it wasn't, I mean, he had jobs. Um, people liked him. He was very charming. He was funny. He was warm. He was empathic. I mean, he wasn't a sociopathic killer by any means, uh, a cold-hearted sociopathic killer, not at all. In fact, that was the problem. He was too sensitive. Um, you know, he was really very easily hurt, and, um, and you know, he, as I said earlier, he – I mean, every day, he is not – just because he's out of prison now, he has not forgotten um, – uh, and, and has not stopped taking responsibility and felt bad for um, having killed Scott. Um, and, and, of course, the whole thing about uh, the media, you know, misinterpreting this, I mean, it made better headlines to call this a gay hate crime. That was the whole deal. And, um, and you know, at the time of the trial they thought for sure that this was going to be uh, a first degree, that he was going to be convicted of first degree murder. Interestingly, um, after he got second degree and after he got 25 to 50 with the possibility of parole, um, he, I then um, helped him to get an appeal, except that the appeal, uh, you know, the regular trial took weeks. The first trial took weeks. And then, on the appeal, it took uh, days, and he was um, in fact, I had tried to get him. I contacted all kinds of high profile lawyers, defense lawyers, to try to to get them to be his lawyer pro bono. And I had gotten um, some who said they would, and one of them went and met with him and so on. and um, but John didn't decide it, he didn't want that because he didn't think he deserved to have. Um, a good lawyer. He didn't deserve to have a better chance, you know, because of how guilty he felt about what happened. And so in the end, he wound up getting an appeal, but um, with a public defender who spent like no time preparing his defense. And then the judge wouldn't allow a psychiatric a psychiatrist um, like me, you know, a defense psychiatrist to testify. And so in the process of writing my book, I interviewed a lot of people, including the jury uh, from this second trial, and asked them, you know, got their impressions, and then asked them, what if they had known, what if there had been a psychiatrist uh, talking about John's life, and what if they had known, for example, about his history with his father and, and uh you know, um, the, his father and grandfather and great-grandfather being homophobic and how he was afraid of losing their love and how, you know, he wasn't a hard-drinking, um, hard-hunting, hard-military man like his father's father and grandfather and great-grandfather and how they thought he was gay to begin with and all of this. Um, if they knew that, what, what, how would they have voted? What would they have given him? Because it was really, it should have been a manslaughter case, you know, in the heat of passion. And so the majority of the jurors who I interviewed said um, that if they had known that they wouldn't have voted for, for a second degree, they would have given him a, le- a lesser charge. And then the the judge came into the jury room and um, also had asked them a question. If they had known such and such, would they have, you know, voted for a lesser charge? And they said, yes. So, so, um, there were just all kinds of things happening in the in the in the jail and the prison and um, and then uh, when I went to in order to get an appeal you have to have uh, a judge sign you have to write you know write out an application and you have to um, have the judge sign it and so I helped him to fill out the application for an appeal and I went to get the judge to sign it and the judge refused uh to see me refused i kept going you know there kept being all this um he was like running away you know hiding um there was and and i couldn't stay in michigan forever so i kept trying to find the judge you know finally i got a uh one of his clerks who didn't really know about how how strongly the prosecution wanted to uh, not give him an appeal, wanted to have this just end, and um, and so this clerk of the judge signed it, and that's how he got the appeal in the first place. So there was all there are all these things that I write about um, about the, the things behind the scenes, you know, that go on um, that really that really you know it's it's kind of like the, the behind the scenes. At the Jenny Jones show, how she was talking to her executive producer about things, and then lying about that, you know, on the stand, saying, "Oh, she didn't know that uh, that they weren't going to tell him it was a same-sex secret cross." She did. They didn't ambush him, you know. All these things, and and what was one of the things that was particularly disturbing? Not only that she was lying, but that she would she kept smiling and laughing at questions. Uh, this was all a big joke to her. I mean, you know, yes, clearly she was anxious and she was smiling and, and, uh, and laughing out of anxiety. But, um, but this was a murder trial. You know, one person was dead because of her show and somebody else was on trial for, for life, could have gotten life. So and she's smiling about these things. So it was really, you know, um, I, I want people to know some of the things that go on behind the scenes
0: what do you think Scott was thinking if you could have talked to him um, what what do I think who was thinking Scott the victim
1: Scott what was he thinking Yes
0: do you have any sense? Scott it? was
1: thinking Scott went on the show because um, he was hoping even though John had said uh, I'm not I'll be your friend but I'm not into this. Scott was hoping that somehow um, he could embarrass him into uh, saying yes, maybe saying yes he was gay or saying yes he would have a relationship with him um, or (laughs) if not that, at least he would embarrass him on national television. And then there was another part to this, another interesting part, which was um, that Donna Riley the mutual friend of the two of them Donna lived in the same building apartment building as John and so Donna was friends with Scott and had and friends with John and that's she she's the one who kind of got them to know each other and um, and she actually had come uh, on to John and John wasn't attracted to her and she was a woman scorned she was angry that he wasn't attracted to her. And um, this was, you know, she was, that was her part in all of this, encouraging all of this, because, uh, you know, she wanted to embarrass him. She wanted, part of her wanted to prove that he was gay, and that would explain why he wasn't attracted to her. She didn't want to believe it was because, you know, he didn't think she was attractive. Um, so she was sort of the little mole in all of this. Um, encouraging the whole thing. And when John, the way they set it up on the Jenny Jones show, when John came on stage, the first person who he saw was Donna. She, because she was sitting um, on the side of Scott, and Scott was, like, behind her. And so so when he first came on the stage, he thought that it was Donna, and, like, you know, that made sense to him because he knew that she liked him. And then he walked a little further on the stage And lo and behold, there was Scott. And, um, you know, and that's when everything uh, fell apart. What can we learn from this story? (laughs) Don't go on reality shows. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Don't go on reality shows unless you fully understand the uh, potential consequences, you know, the pitfalls. Um, I think what, what I want people to learn from the story is to, as I was saying, to see behind the scenes, um, to know that, to know that uh, people have agendas, you know, that, um, that you, you, if you do take a big risk when you go on these shows, you have to be ready for that. Um, you, do, you have to see that the justice system is sometimes... You know, it's not always as it seems. I mean, I I do lots of cases, um, and most of them turn out well. But there is so much more. It's not, you know, there's kind of this faith um, in the judicial system, which for the most part is well founded, but um, and it's not as bad as going on a talk show. But um, but. There are, you know, there are things that you can't control uh, and that are going on behind the scenes. Like um, sometimes, you know, jurors uh, have their own, bring their own life story to being in the jury box. And things, even though there's voir dire, where the the, uh, two attorneys get a chance to ask the jurors questions, Uh, And they try to screen out jurors who have reasons why they might be for or against the defendant. But you can't screen out everything. And, um, you know, you can't ask each juror uh, their whole life story. And so uh, oftentimes there are things that make them uh, vote one way or the other in the jury box. And... And I, I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't mean to say that, uh, that people should never go on talk shows. I was kind of, that was a bit tongue-in-cheek. But, but you have to realize the whole, you have to understand that, that this, is, this is entertainment. You know, this is not, um, this is not for your, uh, it's, not, it's not just, it's not therapy. <laughs> it's not, uh, sometimes you can get something out of it that's very helpful. But um, but you have to just have your guard up and be aware of what you're getting into. And the same thing with the jury system, that you have to present the best case possible. You know, um, you need to have – I mean, I didn't get paid for um, anything that I did for all the hours that I spent on this case. Um, there was supposed to have been the promise of – of the court paying me at some indefinite time in the future, but that never happened, and I didn't do it for the money. I mean, I knew that that whenever the court is supposed to pay you, that's always very iffy, <laughs> so I knew that going in. Uh, but I felt, because of my experiences that I had had as a guest on talk shows, you know, as the expert on talk shows, um, I I knew uh, what the impact um, what likely happened on the show, even before I met John, you know, actually when I, when I wanted to write about it in my column, uh, it was because, you know, I, I, wanted, I wanted people to know about the kinds of things that go on. And, and, uh, and then, of course, um, so, so from the very beginning, you know, I was trying to warn people about that or expose that. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, I mean, if I had gone there and met John and saw he was just a sociopath, and it had nothing to do with the show. Obviously, I wouldn't have testified on his behalf, but that wasn't the case. Um, so, you know, you, you you need
0: people.
1: You need people who, um, are you know, when people who go, when people are involved in court cases, civil cases or criminal cases, they need to make sure that they have the best uh, lawyers and the best experts expert witnesses, because that really makes all the difference. And I'd like
0: to say thank you to Dr. Carol Lieberman, MD, MPH, therapist, forensic psychiatrist, and author for her new book on the trial of Jonathan Schmidt's Convicted Murderer. Thank you, Dr. Lieberman. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94WIP, all sports radio. It is a sunny day, but it's a little chilly out there. So no matter where you go, take a warm jacket and take 94WIP with you. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. And we're back, and we've eased on out of conversation and into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a chilly but beautiful WIP day out there. So no matter where you you go, take 94 WIP with you. A warm jacket, certainly. But after that, anything goes. And anything goes as we consider reopening our, our involvement with society as The um, COVID-19 epidemic seems to be slowing down, but does it? So think very carefully before you go on out there. And we'll be right back after these messages. Good morning, and the conversation continues as we ease on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, alive here in the Tasty Cake Studios, as I bring you my guest, Eric Weiberg. Eric tells the story of a little-known piece of World War II history in his new book, You Boats in the Bahamas. Good morning, Eric Weiberg.
2: Good morning, Peter. Good to be here. How are you, sir?
0: Thank you. I'm fine. Why don't we know more? I mean, I hear you. U-boats in the Bahamas, that makes me very nervous because it's a short trip from the Bahamas to Florida.
2: <laughs> That's true, and, and the U-boats knew all about it. Uh, fortunately, this happened about you know 75 years ago, so uh, there's no danger to us now. But um, the ships were transiting you know between Florida and the Bahamas, and they were easy prey uh, because uh, they used specific channels. And the U-boats knew that they used uh, those channels and, and took advantage of that uh, information.
0: Why don't we know more about this, though? I mean, this shocked me, and I fancy myself a student of history. Five one two five seven seven five zero four four. Sure. Well, my theory is having studied
2: sort of the the ethos or the idea of empire uh, over at Oxford was that the British were uh, deeply ashamed uh, that this happened at all, and so were the Americans. The Americans really prioritized after uh, Pearl Harbor on attacking, you know, the Japanese in the Pacific, and they didn't allocate enough resources to protect their flank. Also, there were embarrassing episodes which seemed inconceivable in the post-9-11 world where the mayors of of towns like Miami and and, uh, Virginia Beach would tell the federal government that they weren't turning off their lights, that their business was too important, and uh, that for the sake of of, uh, the tourism uh, product, they had to keep uh, keep the lights blaring. So that was a huge help uh, to the Germans and the Italian submarines that attacked. Uh, because they could outline the vessels against the lights. And, of course, they could use the navigation beacons just the same way the Allies used them, which was to guide them uh, to port. And they mined uh, a number of ports. They landed saboteurs. I mean, the story is a very rich one in the telling.
0: Now, it's interesting to me. German submarines we knew about. Italian submarine sounds like this initial line of a bad joke.
2: Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And uh, I was as shocked as anyone. Um, the problem, you know, you can imagine that if you're researching a ship that was sunk and, and you know that the ship was sunk and you have some survivors, accounts, for, but there's no record at all in the German records. And you think, well, I must be going crazy because, you know, who else could have sunk a ship off the Bahamas or off, you know, Florida or in you know Bermuda? And uh, the answer is Italians. The Italians had the largest submarine fleet in the world at the time. The Germans hadn't uh, ramped up their production uh, to capacity yet, and the Germans wanted it. So they sent them off on wolf packs, and they found that the submarines were too large and cantankerous for the maneuverability required for convoy, and also that the commanders were too independent. Uh, a convoy attack requires close collaboration and sort of subservience to the other submarines, but the Italian commanders were much more freewheeling. So um, the their compromise was to give the Italians... Uh, Six boats uh, and a, a huge area of ocean, and tell them to patrol it. And that's what they did. They were kind of a rear guard action between Bermuda and the Bahamas. And they were very effective, in some cases, sinking a ship every day uh, for 10 days. And they, uh, they patrolled the area east of the Bahamas, sinking uh, at least two ships, three ships, in fact, uh, almost within sight of land Elutra, Abaco, and St. Salvin.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that we didn't devote enough resources to the East Coast waters. Were there resources even to develop, to devote, though? I mean, so much was destroyed at Pearl Harbor, everything was needed in the Pacific.
2: Well, yes. The, I, I'm not an expert in the larger strategy of the global war, but um, we did have these sort of three stack, four stack you know, World War I destroyers, uh, but a lot of them were loaned out, you know, to, ironically, you know, to the British. Um, to use in their anti-submarine warfare. So, and the Canadians had a fleet. We had um, FDR had been an undersecretary to the Navy in the First World War, and he was a huge proponent in small vessels. He he really believed that uh, a corsair fleet of small, sort of you know wooden anti-submarine, anti-mine um, vessels like yachts, you know, could 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 have a, a an effect on the U-boat. Of course, we now know they couldn't, and they didn't. Um, but uh, they were sent out uh, in the hundreds, these yachts uh, refitted and named uh, Navy vessels. And uh, it would just result that we even had a decoy ship, the Attic, A-T-I-K, which was savagely destroyed by U-123 off Norfolk once the, the, the fake uh, ploy was discovered. So we, what we needed was destroyers, and we sent them all to the Pacific, the Pacific obviously being a massive theater. A um, few would deny... Uh, that we, we could have allocated more to protect uh, our eastern seaboard. And eventually we did protect it by sending uh, ships into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where they waited for the submarines to come up because they inevitably required air and for their diesels and for the men. And when they did come up, we, we sent aircraft uh, from aircraft carriers to destroy them. But, but just to give you an idea, to substantiate the notion that we didn't protect our coast well enough. The, the whole fallout was subsequently called the Battle of Washington.
0: <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, one of the things I like about your book is it's not just a story of ships and battles. It's a story of people as well. You talk about a lot of people who played pivotal roles in U boats in the Bahamas. One of the ones that intrigues me the most are the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the Duke of Windsor being the Governor General of the Bahamas. Tell me more, please. Sure
2: thing. And that the uh, Duchess of Windsor was a fascinating uh, woman. She is more relevant uh, to this study than the Duke. Uh, the Duke uh, spent a lot of time, uh, you know, shuttling between D.C. and Florida. And um, uh, his wife, however, was the head of the Red Cross uh, for the colony, uh, British colony of the Bahamas. And in that capacity, she was in charge of. Um, initially arranging for uh, donation of supplies to the Red Cross, in the Bahamas, and transshipment of the same uh, to England. However, once they started having um, men wash ashore, uh, covered in oil or starving, emaciated, hungry, um, their job shifted to looking after the actual uh, human flotsam of war. And they got an early taste of it uh, as early as 1941, I believe, when a ship was uh, sunk in the Atlantic, not by a U-boat, but by a raider, And so they had to look after these uh, two men, uh, Tapscott and Whittacombe. So uh, they uh, looked after 255 men that landed in the Bahamas uh, from uh, 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 about a dozen ships. And the Duchess of Windsor is fascinating. She um, grew up in the Baltimore area. She had um, a very distinguished family uh, lineage, but not a lot of money. She grew up in a tenement house, but went to one of the fancy boarding schools. And uh, she... Uh, married an uh, an American uh, Air Force officer um, the marriage was not a great success apparently he had the habit of drinking too much and and allegedly um, there was some spousal abuse there so they ended up in Hong Kong where she left him and dated Mussolini's uh, son-in-law or future son-in-law and uh, then she moved to London and fell in love with the, uh, the head of um, a ship brokerage uh, Simpson married Simpson Uh, subsequently fell in love with the Duke of Windsor, who uh, was going to be the King of England. Indeed, he became uh, King Edward VIII. Uh, He abdicated the throne uh, to marry her. She divorced Simpson. He fell on the sword. Uh, He took the blame for the for the dissolution of the marriage, uh, which, of course, he wasn't uh, to blame for. And uh, she was able to marry uh, the Duke of Windsor after uh, he'd given up the throne. So uh, they moved to Portugal, and they were the center of a lot of uh, espionage, uh, a- excitement, and activity. And the British were afraid that the Nazis would use the Duke of Windsor and his wife, Wallis Simpson, as puppets uh, to rule England in the event that the, the Germans took over England. And the, uh, the Duke and, and Duchess were known to be, um, or strongly suspected, believed to be a Nazi sympathist. They had been to Germany. They would met Adolf Hitler. And so uh, Churchill ordered them uh, whisked away by ship from Portugal uh, via Bermuda to the Bahamas. And they were to spend over four years in the Bahamas uh, as the governor and the head of the Red Cross. So uh, I think she did a wonderful job. And most people have uh, uh, not such flattering things to say about her. But I think that in the Bahamas, the historical record is replete with instances where she uh, went out of her way. She opened all the stores on the uh, Merchant Street, uh, so that all the survivors could help themselves for free uh, to the items they needed toothbrushes, razors, pajamas. Uh, she uh, was uh, revolutionary in as much as the Imperial Order of the Daughters of Empire, uh, a women's uh, social organization, refused to feed the survivors alcohol, fearing that they would sort of pinch girls' bottoms and become a social malaise, you know, throw up in the street and pass out and be a police problem. And the Duchess of Windsor said, wait a second, we're all sitting here safely behind the lines and uh and you you know these men are risking their lives and and the ships are sinking and they're lucky to have survived this far we're going to send them right back to sea where they might drown which they did a lot of them and um let's give them alcohol so she was quite um, um an interesting woman and i give her a lot of credit
0: was she easy to research though i can't imagine the royal family like writing about her well, he, she
2: was, to my research in the Bahamas, because she was the only person uh, that met every single survivor, uh, you know, certainly the, only, the most memorable person, uh, that was there on the dock waiting for them. And these men were so grateful. Of course, they were you know, gobsmacked to meet you know, royalty uh, on arrival in a remote colony from a shipwreck. But uh, she, she was a really instrumental uh, person in terms of helping these men uh, that landed from a highly traumatic experience uh, readjust to their life in the Bahamas and then subsequently uh, to you know, carry on the battle uh, in the North Atlantic after leaving the Bahamas. So I give her a lot of credit. She's also a fascinating um, character in history uh, you know, as a social icon, as a fashion icon, um, and an amazing, I think, an amazing person.
0: All right. Were you able to research any of the people on the Allied side or the Axis side? Uh,
2: Yes, I did hear from a German commander uh, who wrote um, a book called Iron Coffins, Herbert A. Warner, and he lived in Florida and he was notoriously difficult to find. But uh, he told me, he said, I said, I have just one question. Uh, Did the Germans land in the Bahamas? Because my family were Swedish and they were accused of having... Um, it somehow supported the Germans um, yeah, and, and part of the, the, the myth was that the Germans landed and and socialized with the Swedes who, who were working in the Bahamas to build a canal for Venegrin Axel Venegrin who owned Electrolux the, the point is this Herbert Warner emphatically denied that the Germans had ever come ashore he said look we were behind enemy lines we were scared stiff we only had one pair of clothes we would have never risked it to go ashore they stank to high heaven and he said, last of all, why would we have gone into shallow waters? You know, it was uh, the worst place possible to go because that's where the airplanes could find us. And that's where we could run aground and a lot of bad things could happen. He said the submarines stuck to the deep water. That's where they sank the ships. And that's where they had the most um, effect in terms of allied um, Uh, uh, One other Axis personality uh, that I didn't get to meet because he killed himself during the war uh, was um, Count uh, or Duke Carlo Feccia di Casato and he was the Italian commander of one of the submarines. And he sank, uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, like a ship a day for for like almost two weeks. And um, he was an extraordinary, um, accomplished officer. And uh, uh, he's so famous in Italy that they've named a submarine after him in the 80s. So, that's one of the highest honors you can bestow in the Navy. So he uh, really an amazing person that uh, was very effective at sinking Allied ships. Most of the, because there was no um, air cover, these uh, commanders could afford to be quite chivalrous and wait around, make sure that the survivors were in the lifeboats, give them blankets, give them compasses, whiskey, food, cigarettes, and, and instructions on how to get to land. So um, there are actual uh, records of the interaction between the Allied survivors and the Axis uh, attackers.
0: Were you able to find out why the count killed himself? Oh, yes, indeed. He um,
2: he was uh, came from a long dynasty of uh, uh, I think the Savoy dynasty of of family members who had fought for the king. And I'm not an expert on Italian sort of military maneuvers during World War II, but basically, when the Italians uh, sided with the Allies against the Germans, and he had fought with the Germans and for the king for so long that he found that unpalatable, and uh, he begged for, they put him in prison because he refused to fight after he had fought very bravely, and um, the the king refused, the king was too busy, he had a lot of matters on his own plate, and um, the the king refused to see him, and he took this as a terrible affront, and um, out of uh, just sheer frustration, uh, took his own life. So, um, it's very sad, very tragic, and, and like a lot of suicides, probably Uh, unnecessary.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Eric Weiberg, author of a new book about U-boats in the Bahamas. Eric, I need you to stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. Of course. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 7 to 16. And we're back. And I'm here now to welcome for some conversation on WIP Sunday employment expert Marco Greenberg. He's president of Thunder 11, a strategic communications corporation in New York City, where he's advisor and confident to CEOs and other C-level executives. Good morning, Marco Greenberg.
3: Hey, good morning. Great to be with you all.
0: Thank you. Marco, in this world of COVID-19, we've got 14 million people, I think is the last number I heard, people unemployed. Are they ever going to find a job again?
3: Well, I actually think the number might be worse than that. I've heard figures of 30, 33 million filing for unemployment. Of course, that doesn't include the hidden unemployed, many people that were laid off during the great recession of 08, 09, who haven't even bothered to look for a job again. Uh, Look, the the sad news is that there is a significant percentage that might not find work. The good news is that the majority will. But I think looking for work in the conventional way, sending off a resume and hoping someone responds, being passive and reactive rather than proactive, rather than sometimes audacious, um, is not going to work. So You need to take the road less traveled, as the book says. How would you do that? In my book, Primitive, Tapping the Primal Drive that Powers the World's Most Successful People, we we do detail some ways of tapping into that primal energy. Uh, We have an acronym that people can tap into so they too can uh, follow the path of the world's most successful people. We call it roaming. Uh, like our ancient ancestors did on the plateau, on the prairie, uh, tens of thousands of years ago. In our lexicon, the R is for relentless, and it doesn't just mean working hard. Sometimes it is quitting. Sometimes it is making a right turn or a left turn. Uh, O is for oppositional, not just going with the group think, but having the courage to say, I disagree. Hopefully in a way that doesn't get you fired, but shows that you're independent, that you're ready to constructively challenge uh, A is the agnostic, and I think this gets to your question as well, in terms of jumping from field to field, job to job. This is not the time to be the uber specialist, right? The, 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 the typewriter repairman uh, learned his lesson many decades ago that being overly specialized can often have liability. Uh, M is for messianic, about really saying that you have a divine calling, that it's more than a job, that it's, it's what you're on, on on planet Earth to do. I do that there are a lot of people that walk around with swagger and say it's all good. I think we have discovered with COVID-19 it's not all good, That sometimes anxiety is underrated. Uh, N is for being a little crazy, a little bit nuts, crazy in a good kind of way, and G is for gallant, uh, taking care of the others. So To answer your question, there is no one recipe of how someone can wake up today who's unemployed and find a job tomorrow. But there are a combination of different attitudes and mindset and specific steps that one can take to get to the top of the heap rather than wait for HR to call you. How would you do that? Uh, One way, and I share this in the book uh, from my own personal experience. Uh, back in, I'm dating myself here, so forgive me, but back in uh, December of 1991, it wasn't a great economic time. My goal was to land a job at one of the biggest PR and marketing agencies in New York City. In fact, the biggest in the country at the time, Bruce and Marsteller. Um, I couldn't even get a meeting with a secretary. And yes, we called them secretaries in those days, not administrative assistants. I couldn't get a meeting with a mid-level manager. I was already rejected from HR and got the form letter. Instead, I stepped back and I said, I'm going to send off a wild pitch letter, yes, to the co-founder of the company indicating why they should hire me, what I can contribute to their bottom line. And the letter began, Dear Mr. Buckwald, incidentally, World War II vet, still alive, still going strong, talk about it in my book. I said, dear Mr. Buckwald, I've been practicing public relations without a license. And I went through my various job positions before that to convince him of how I could contribute to their company. Well, guess what? I picked up the phone. My voice was quivering. I called and I asked for an interview. At first, he also rebuffed me and said, I don't know how we can help you. We're not hiring, etc." I said, I'm just looking for 10 minutes of your time for some advice. I walked in. He peppers me with some questions. I get a job offer three days later. So I think there's some lessons there that are still applicable today, if not more so today, which is if you only go that conventional route and go to HR and and are in line with countless other applicants, there's a chance that you're not going to hire, get hired. There's a good chance. A lot of the times HR is in the job, in in the business of saying no, not yes. Instead, you have to figure out, who can I target within that organization? How can I infiltrate that organization? How can I show the contribution I can make and why my experience is relevant, but more of my mindset is relevant? And I think people over the last couple decades have been very used to relying on their credentials as the way to open the doors. Today, I think it's the mindset, and in my lexicon, it's time to be more primal, yes, more primitive, and I mean that in the most positive sense of the word, rather than just doing what we should do or what we must do. And a lot of people think that's only applying to jobs via Indeed and LinkedIn and going through the conventional door of HR. Instead, think about how you can go through the back door, the side door, etc., etc.
0: Experience trump's credentials um not necessarily i think mindset
3: can often trump credentials i think if people can show that they have the talent that they have the aptitude that they have the right attitude to do what is necessary then i think sometimes they look at the resume and they say well this domain expertise in this particular field Maybe it's not as relevant today, right? If you're owning a restaurant and the restaurant goes belly up and you're looking to get a job in another restaurant, well, that's going to be a tough, tough challenge. Instead, you might take your culinary skills, your knowledge of the food industry, and go to work in the local grocery. Now, sometimes you've got to take one step back to take two steps forward. And I think another lesson here is that Sometimes you need to do what you think is beneath you. Uh, I have a son who's waiting to go off to college. He's an essential frontline worker and has been working the last three months at the local grocery, bagging groceries. Now, a lot of the other parents are telling their kids, you know, don't be out there. you got to stay at home. And, you know, they're staying at home and watching video games and getting on Instagram. My son has a mask on. He has gloves on but he's working day in and day out. So for me, that shows a couple different things. One is, as I talked about earlier, about being, being able to roam, being agnostic, not tied to one specific area, because that one specific area could be hurting really bad right now. And I use the restaurant business as an obvious example. Instead, find something related where your skills and, and experience are relevant but that you can also bring something else to the table. And they're hiring. They need people. Go to the companies that need people. Don't just work hard and uh, go in a direction that is going to get you lost and not get you what you want in terms of your your professional life.
0: How important is um, your resume?
3: Um. I think it's important. Uh, I, I've hired, you know, hundreds of people over the years, probably more. And I, I think little things matter: um, proofreading, um, not repeating the same word over and over again, catching typos, catching spelling mistakes. That sounds trivial, but it's not because little things matter. How you how you do anything is how you do everything, as they say. But I think at a larger level. This is the time for you to state your objective up on top of the resume and how you can help that organization grow revenue, right? The the organization could be an entrepreneur. They need more now than than ever. The organization could be a school. Same thing applies. (laughs) Those laws of business are more applicable now than ever, and people are going to want employees who are industrious, who are proactive, who are not nine-to-fivers, who want to go above and beyond. And part of showing that can be through the resume in terms of reflecting on what you've done in the past and then showing how you can help this organization in the future. Um, you go on LinkedIn, and I think one of the nice things about LinkedIn that you don't get on a resume is recommendations, right? Um, a lot of people can uh, you know have their friends say nice things about them. But when it's a leader of a recognizable company saying that someone is in the top 10 percentile of employees they've ever had, I think that speaks more.
0: Recommendations, though. How important are they? I mean, how do they know it's a real recommendation and that's your great at Mary? Well, I mean, <laughs> Recommendations—it's—it's it's
3: all word of mouth, right? I mean, if I get a call from someone saying you need to hire this young woman, you need to hire this young man, here's why—that uh, means a lot more than what college they went to or what their resume says, etc. So it's—it's it's, we live still, and I think this is a kind of a primal thing. We live still in a word of mouth culture, right? I, I hesitate to use the word viral for obvious reasons during COVID-19, but but that's also how good information passes from one person to the other. Um, I, Uber is reporting at the top of the week their earnings. I remember, you know, years ago in in 20 you know 14, 2013, people didn't know what Uber was. I was turning on heads of you know. Big startups say, hey, have you been using Uber, et cetera, et cetera. you got to download the app. Well, a lot of that was done through word of mouth. It wasn't done through a big advertising campaign at the time. So, you know, we see their ads now, but we didn't then when it was getting started. So the the same applies, especially in a tough job market, to treating yourself as your own brand. The people talk about you and how you can help that organization and why you're not the run-of-the-mill employee. That's one thought. But, but there are a lot of other options out there. This is an opportunity to be bold and start thinking about, you know, how do you put a shingle out there? Maybe people aren't going to hire you in this market, and that's probably the, the darn truth. So thinking about how you can be resourceful, and I'd like to make a prediction out there. I think we're going to see an increase in family businesses. Over the next couple of years, people sitting down for dinner, looking at their brother-in-law, looking at their sister-in-law, looking at their uncle, their aunt, etc., and saying, "Hey, remember we always wanted to start that, you know, uh, e-commerce chocolate factory? Let's uh, uh, chocolate uh, operation. Let's give it a try." I'm using that as just uh, an example as I sit on a corner facing a chocolate shop. So forgive me on that, but but the idea is valid nonetheless. And uh, welcome. Does that make sense to you? It's not just working, getting in the side door, front door, back door of an existing organization. Sometimes the bad economic times are the reason to start something new. Disney, do you know what year Disney was started in?
0: What year was Mr. Disney started? 1929.
3: HP was started in the middle of the 1930s, still during the Depression. I mentioned Uber. Uber was started right after the, 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 the Great Recession. Same with Square, same with WhatsApp, etc. So the old adage that uh, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention is probably more apt now than ever before.
0: When you go for an interview or go to make a pitch, how important is it how you look? Do you need clean, clean, clean hair? Well-trimmed. Is well, uh, my, my
3: wife has told me that, that, that my uh, follicly challenged scalp, that well, has a little bit of hair on it, needs, needs a, uh, a trim and a shave today. So that's one of the activities we're going to do. In mother, on Mother's Day, of course, it's only after I give her for Mother's Day yes, yeah. but, but seriously, if there is a rule for being presentable, being well-groomed, Uh, It's not a beauty pageant, or should it be? But I think if people are not taking care of themselves, then it's frankly a turnoff to the potential employer. I want to go one step beyond that, which is talk about something that is probably uh, not politically correct to address, but I'll out myself on this, which is employers also like to find people who are physically fit. Um, I've hired people that have done CrossFit with me, which is an insane, crazy workout you might have heard of. Um, that also spread word of mouth that we should not do by a guy named Dave Boston, et cetera. But I'm also partial to athletes. Um, shout out to St. Joe's University. Um, I hired a young man who was working for the city of New York, previously the city of Philadelphia. Um, he told me he was a Division One track athlete at St. Joe. Oh, my gosh, being physically fit, showing that you're competitive, showing that you can endure some pain and discomfort, that is going to put an applicant, again, in in, in my view, uh, to to, to the front of the line. But I think for people that are looking for work, one of the basic pieces of advice is don't just wait in line and wait to be picked. Sometimes you've got to jump the line. Sometimes you've got to cut the line, and sometimes you have to do what you shouldn't. You're not supposed to do. We're all supposed to go through HR. Sometimes that can work, but oftentimes get on LinkedIn. Do the research. When I was looking for a job, I had to go to the library. Do you remember microfiche and microfilm? Yep. Uh-huh. I had to spin the dials for hours to find trade articles about people that I was trying to target. Remember, I talked about Mr. Buckwall, the person, Marstello, PR firm, how I cold-called him, sent him an off-the-wall pitch letter. Well, today, I think a lot of people are being lazy in not mining the information that is out there literally and figuratively at their fingertips. You You can really do due diligence on people and find out the connections you have with them and the connections could be people. The connections could be common interests. The connections could be a university you went to in common, a high school you went to uncommon, common, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of people send off these generic,
0: vanilla pitches and then
3: wonder why they don't hit pages.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, employment expert, Marco Greenberg. Marco, i have got to run a few commercials. We'll be right back. Just say play 94 WIP, WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, employment expert, Marco Greenberg. How to help find a job in this, the era of COVID. All right, Marco. Um, what are things we should be thinking about as we're job hunting in COVID? I mean, do we really want a job?
3: Uh, it's a very basic question that you ask, but it's a, a critical question. I, I think there are, are people out there that uh, uh, sometimes would rather, you know, lay on the couch and, and, and understandably be with their family or pursue a, a hobby that uh, cannot generate any income. That's their personal decision, of course, but there are consequences to those decisions. I think most people do want a job. I think most people derive benefit that goes beyond the, uh, the check, uh, that goes beyond the direct deposit. Now, there, there are two ways of answering that uh, if we want to get deeper on it, is, you know, is it a job for someone else? It is, is it a consulting gig? Is it you starting your own venture, uh, being an entrepreneur, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there, there are different ways to look at that. But I think people are more hungry for work, and you have to be hungry and show that to a prospective employer, whether it's a prospective employer, a prospective client, um, hiring you for a gig. I'll give you two examples of friends that I have that have found jobs during COVID-19. One is a guy named Scott who worked at an uh, office-sharing company, uh, co-working. They're going through a tough time right now. Literally, uh, you, know, you can see the tumbleweeds going through the hallways there. Um, what did he do? He got out of that job and went back to an industry that's hurting, hospitality, but he went back to a boss. He did a U-turn. He went back to a boss who he'd worked for, for a few years ago, they continued the dialogue, and he decided that the best way to progress was to return to a job that he already had. Have another friend, Tim, who was working in the meditation yoga kind of space. Um, and, you know, there's still yoga going on, but it's online. It's not like people are, you know, wrapped around the blocks of the local yoga class. So they're not generating the kind of revenue that they did. What did he do? He went to an area that is higher. We talked about the grocery business. We talked about e-commerce. Those are areas that are growing, right? He went to another area that's growing, the online education, and got a job. So that, that's just two friends of, and I can give you other examples, who have found jobs in COVID-19, but they didn't necessarily do it the traditional way. I think there are too many people that throw a line out as if they're fishing, waiting for a bite, and there are not enough people that are going out there and hunting. And that, you know, it
0: gets back to one of the themes in my
3: book, Primitive Tapping the Primal Drive, the Powers the World's Most Successful People.
0: Do I want to hire someone in the era of COVID-19, whether they've had it or they haven't? Well, if they're
3: contagious, obviously not. That's a public health issue, and they have to uh, certainly get better and quarantine themselves. But we're also going to be hiring a lot of people who had it, who have developed antibodies, who are now strong and fit. Uh, mentioned earlier, uh, CrossFit. I got an email, a group email. One of the people that I work out with had COVID nineteen, had COVID nineteen. She said in her case, thankfully, it wasn't as bad as other people, but look, there are already those that are wearing it as a badge of honor that they got through it. Tragically, there are people, way too many, who are losing their lives. But at a certain point, we all have to get back to work. Whether getting back to work is opening the laptop in our kitchen, or whether getting back to work is more traditional in terms of going back to the office, people often identify with work. And I think some of the most successful people out there see work as, a crucial part of their identity and and why they're out there. I've been blown away by talking to physicians who might be a dermatologist, might be an orthopedic surgeon. They are in the ICUs and hospitals all over Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, et cetera, et cetera. And they're treating COVID-19 patients. And when I've talked to these physicians, either through my work or because I have a personal relationship with them, they are infused with positive energy that they're doing what they want to do, which is healing, right? So it doesn't matter what your specialty is. Getting back to agnostic. using different devices is an example of being agnostic. Jumping from one field to another is, is being agnostic. That we're not you know, stuck in one area, but we're nimble, we're agile, we're flexible. And we're tapping into the maverick in ourselves that can, that can jump and that is intellectually curious and wants to explore. So I think that's a great example that, that physicians and nurses and other people that work in healthcare systems, including even janitors oftentimes, and there's research about that, how janitors in hospitals don't see themselves as janitors and custodians. They see themselves on the front line of healing and health care for others.
0: But as an employer, or potential employer, do I, want to hire, do I want to hire someone who's likely going to drive my health care costs up?
3: Well, there are things that uh, employers will think to themselves or say in very small groups, but obviously won't put in the public domain, uh, won't send an email on, won't talk about to a larger group. Um, I, I think if someone can really help that organization grow and prosper and is the right cultural fit and is likable. I think there's a misnomer out there that job boards and algorithms do the hiring. In most cases, at the end of the day, people hire people. And people, in the words of a former client, Jack Mitchell, who owns Mitchell's Richard's uh, clothing stores around the country, uh, people do business with people they like. So if I can see someone who might have some challenges in terms of uh, their health, but they can contribute to the bottom line, that's even better. It it strikes a different kind of chord. I'll, 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 I'll give you an example There's a guy in my book, Peter, uh, Stephen Value. He was shot in Iraq um, taking apart explosive devices. Uh, He's a paraplegic. He lives in upstate New York. Um, He works for a paving company. I hired him to pave my driveway uh, about nine months ago, and he did a stellar job. Now, the fact that he's in a wheelchair, one would think, well, maybe he can't do the paving, etc., He did better than most, and that gets back to his mindset, his psychology. He wants to work. He wants to contribute. He wants to help other people. So I I don't care if you're running the mile in 415 or if you're in a wheelchair. If you have the right mindset, if you bring the right attitude to work, if you're positive, if you want to please others, then you're going to have a higher likelihood of finding gainful employment.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Mario Greenberg, expert on finding employment in this era of COVID. Mario, you have a book?
3: Yes, I do. It's uh, Primitive, Tapping the Primal Drive that Powers the World's Most Successful People. You can go to primitivebook.com for more information. And I hope it helps people. We are in a primal time when we're dealing with uh, the basics. We're staring at our mortality shelter, safety, sustenance. It was written before COVID-19, and I think it's the right book for, for this challenging time that we're living in.
0: Let's all get primitive with Mario Greenberg's new book, Marco Greenberg's new book. Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Peter. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk. Nothing left to say but see you soon.